Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at tvo.org slash daily. Governments, of course, make policy on all kinds of things, reflecting priorities they think need to be addressed. For example, the previous provincial government chose to make post-secondary tuition for low-income Ontarians effectively free. But just as the Liberal government did not survive the election, neither did that policy. Now, the current government has put forward in these very trying times a different approach. So, how do policymakers decide what to do and how? Ryerson University has a new digital interactive project called Dive Student Aid. And it's our stepping off point tonight to consider just how governments get people training for the jobs of today and tomorrow. And for that, we're joined from the provincial capital by, in Ronsi, Ronsis fails, Kareem Bardizi. He's the co-founder and executive director of the Ryerson Leadership Lab, formerly executive director of policy in the previous liberal government. In Bloor Court, Simona Kiosi. Longtime education reporter and editor for the Globe and Mail, who is now working in government relations at U of T. Of course, I've pronounced her name the way Italians would. She says Chiosi, but that's fine. And in the annex, Melissa Lansman, Vice President, National Public Affairs for Enterprise Canada, and formerly head of Doug Ford's War Room in the 2018 election. And it's great to have you three on TVO tonight. I just want to start our discussion by... Uh, offering a bit of the 411 on a recent announcement that Premier Ford made, and this may give you some indication of what his priorities are these days. For example, uh, a new program on nurses and PSWs uh, will offer $52.5 million to recruit, retain, and support over 3,700 more frontline healthcare workers and caregivers. Among the places this money will go includes $14 million towards training personal support workers, $700,000 in accelerated PSW training to students with prior health experience, and $18 million for nursing graduate job guarantees for those focused on long-term care homes and acute care settings. So you get some sense of the career priorities that the Premier and his government are championing. Uh, Kareem, get us started. Do these types of incentives work, in your view, to get people into the careers that, regardless of who's in power, those in power apparently think we need? Yeah, the incentives uh, can make a big difference. Um, what you need, uh, first of all, is you need to set the stage and you need to have government saying, these are the careers that we think are going to be uh, important. Uh, and especially in those areas of provincial policy responsibility, like health and education, uh, they can make a big difference by saying, these are the careers that are gonna be important and these are the this is the money we're gonna put behind that. Uh, that nursing jobs guarantee is a good one. It's been one that's one that's been around for a long time. Job guarantees are the more, the most kind of aggressive forms of, uh, of pointing people towards careers. You can also do things like, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna uh, follow up with Melissa. Do you, do you think these nudges that uh, governments take from time to time work in order to get younger people into careers that governments tra- uh, champion? Look, I think they're absolutely a, a good start, but I think there's lots of other policy levers that the government can pull on to uh, to make these uh, to make these jobs more attractive, or frankly, to let students know or prospective students know that these are the jobs in need. And that's things like on-the-job training. That's uh, you know incentives to enroll in these kinds of programs. 
uh, that's putting money behind these programs in uh, in, in various public uh, uh, in various um, post-secondary institutions. Uh, and then there is the uh, you know the, there's the issue I think of, uh, of of stigmatization around some of these jobs. And you've seen the uh, the provincial government move to uh, uh, to a world where uh, working in the skilled trades is uh, is something that they're pushing and uh, very aggressively so. Uh, but there exists a stigma out there that the government needs to change public perception on as well. Yeah, Simona, maybe you could weigh in on how effectively you think the government has managed to do that, because it's true, everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, there is this prejudice towards people becoming doctors and lawyers and, God forbid, journalists, but yes, we don't necessarily uh, need more journalists in this world. Uh, We definitely do need more people in the skilled trades. How effectively has the government, using its ability to nudge with policy levers and so on, been at making that happen? Um, I think it's really interesting, the healthcare sector right now, because, you know, it's obviously a crisis situation. So we're really seeing that it takes a crisis for the government to take these sorts of um, measures to, to, I would say, more than nudge to really, really encourage students to go into these fields. Um, But the reality, I think, is that students already are reading the future fairly well. I mean, we know that, you know, um, enrollment in engineering and health sciences is up something like 25 to 40 percent, depending which field you're looking at over the last decade. Um, So students are definitely going in there. I think the other thing that's important is the signals through um, pay hikes for personal support workers. Um, I think those things also tell people that there is more need and there is a future in those um, in those areas. When it comes to the skilled trades, I think it's very important um, to think about the skilled trades through a gender lens. So according to the government's own statistics, only 4% of the skilled trades are currently positions are currently held by women. So um, if we want to get more students in those areas, I think we need to figure out um, as a province, as a country, what it is that is preventing women from entering those fields and how to work on on removing not that stigma. Um, the stigma is not is not the same for men and women. So it's important to to look at that gender lens, I think, for the skilled trades. Hmm. As we set up the next part of this discussion, uh, we do want to dive into the Ryerson Dive series, which examines big policy changes. And uh, and to that end, I guess we're going to start with a bit of a focus on uh, the previous government's efforts to create so-called free tuition Uh, for lower-income people who wanted to go for post-secondary education. And let's just set that up with this clip from the former Deputy Premier, Deb Matthews. Shelton, if you would. My mandate was clear from the Premier to get better value for the money we were spending. And if there were better ways, different ways of doing things, then it was our job to implement that. We decided that the way we would approach it would be to look at, we called them boulders, groups of programs, that had the same goal. And one of the boulders we identified right off the bat was student financial aid. So we forced finance and TCU to actually work together to develop a student aid plan that was way simpler for students and increased participation rates amongst those with the lowest rates. TCU, of course, being training colleges and universities, one of the ministries involved in this. Okay, Kareem, I I want you to take us behind the scenes and talk to us about about how difficult it is when you see all of these, as she calls them, boulders in place, how difficult it is to get numerous members of any government on the same page agreeing to a policy and then giving it effect. How does that happen? 
that happens with uh, political leadership uh, and with advocacy. Um, that clip really shows the two solitudes there of two different departments that are both responsible for a program, but historically feel their own ownership of those issues. And so what the Premier did and what Minister Matthews did uh, with the support of uh, former student activists who ended up being in government, like uh, Paris Szymanski and Sam Andre, who were in that documentary as well, was to say, can we do this better? Can we um, sacrifice some of those tax credits that are going more to higher and low, uh, higher and uh, upper income families and redirect those at no additional cost to lower income families? And that creates the setup, a really virtuous circle where people now start to think, oh, I can access university. If I've got this message that tuition can be free, it's not just good for if you're in grade 12, but it's good if you're in grade six, if your family's starting to think, about what the prospects of post-secondary are for, for later on in your life. Now, you say it took political leadership from the Premier, and the Premier in this case is the person we're going to hear from next. Sheldon, if you would, next clip. I do remember, for me, the penny dropping when I understood that what we were talking about was changing tax credits that were benefiting disproportionately uh, wealthy people and turning that into a grant for students at uh, lower incomes, and that made eminent sense to me. I really loved that trade-off. I loved the, um, the elegance of it. Ontario's 25th Premier Kathleen Wynne. All right, let's get the verdict on this. Kareem, in your view, was the program successful? Uh, it was absolutely successful. I'll just uh, quote some statistics from the first year of the program. 19% increase in awards for students from low-income families, 34% in increase in awards to Indigenous students, 31% in increase in awards to mature students. And you can find these statistics in the interactive dive platform uh, that you're profiling there. Um, so it got more aid to students who needed it. Uh, it was more expensive than originally planned for, but that's in part because uh, more people took up the program than were expected, and that was part of the policy goal. All right, let's get some more feedback. Melissa Lansman, in your view, was the program a success? Well, so I think there is a, there's something that comes from political leadership, but then there's also a political reality of, of when this program was introduced, probably at the end of a mandate of, uh, of, of a government that had sort of lost the confidence of Ontarians on issues of, uh, of affordability and, uh, and was seen to be spending money for the sake of spending money. So Green did mention that the program uh, was oversubscribed and it ballooned to the potential of $2.7 billion by, uh, by next year if it, if it had happened. And so I think that uh, you know, overall, uh, the setup for the program, the communications, the implementation for getting more students to go to school, well, that didn't happen. It just it redistributed uh, who, who, got the, uh, uh, who got the benefit of the, uh, of the taxpayer-funded tuition uh, rather than actually incentivizing more people to uh, seek out post-secondary education. Simone, you want to break the tie on this? Um, I think that, I think, of course, you know, in some ways they're both right. Did it work overall? If I really had to come down on one side or the other, I would say no, it did not work in the way that we really wanted to see increased participant, increased enrollment of those groups. Um, but I think in the way, I think the way that it worked is around communication. And I don't think that we should underestimate that. Um, was it too expensive? Yes. Did it get the whole province? Did it get all of Canada? talking about a discussion about what do we need to make sure that 
students that the groups that Kareem mentioned, indigenous students, mature students, what do they need, not just to get into school, but to actually stay in post-secondary? Because the issue is not just around access, it's around retention. Um, and what we know from, um, from many, many studies, they really need to invest both a lot of money and a lot of personal contact. So Kareem talked about the fact that all of a sudden it sent a signal to families that we care about participation of um, underrepresented groups. If we could, you know, continue on that road where there is personal contact, where there is um, attention to the students who we know are most at risk of dropping out, I think the program could have scaled back the amount of money in the way that it did, that was dispersed, but actually continue to work with the underrepresented groups to make sure that they actually, that they graduate. Because again, it's not about access, it's about graduation, and it's about graduation in time or within four, five, six years. Well, Simona, um, let me do a so little, I, let me do a yeah, follow-up here with sure. you on this, because, uh, you know, I don't know, but I'm not sure that the point of the program in the first place was retention. It was about access. So to that end, I mean, the empirically provable facts here say a lot more students were able to access post-secondary education thanks to this program. It wasn't designed to talk about retention. It was designed to talk about access. Can you really say then that it failed? I think what the auditor uh, auditor's report sh um, found is that the number the enrollments were only up by one to two percent. So more overall, right? So more people received financial aid, but those people who received financial aid were already enrolled. So something like thirty percent more mature students, independent students, and that had something to do with the way that the new program uh, conceptualized um, mature students something like 30% more mature students actually access financial aid. I happen to believe that that is a good thing, that that does lead to retention. Um, one of the other things that the program, that the auditor's report pointed out is that the program was not fully thought out. The goals and measurements were not, they were not integrated. There wasn't really a plan in place to say, okay, how do we track success? How do we, so those early figures, I think were extremely encouraging and were correct um, around increasing access, increasing financial aid to indigenous students. Um, but in terms of how do we measure success? I think Steve, you're really, you're really pointing to something here that the government failed um, in introducing the program, which is to set up those measures and to track them. Okay, that's uh, a lot of criticisms there for Kareem uh, to take a whack at. Go ahead, your response. Well, this in part was a generational policy. Um, so that the uptake in participation wasn't quite there overall in the first couple of years, uh, wasn't intended to be the measure of success. It was really intended to be changing the equation, uh, as Simona indicated. Um, and so uh, I think uh, those who think that a college or university education is probably the best pathway to future incomes uh, and to future economic growth uh, really need, that shows that we really needed a longer term um, establishment to this policy. Another important leader in this, uh, in this calculation, in this, uh, in this decision was uh, Sheldon Levy, the former deputy minister of uh, training colleges and universities. And in the internal deliberations we had as a government, uh, we spent a lot of time looking at not what are grade 11 and grade 12 students experiencing now or what are university or college students right now experiencing, but what are those families uh, that are 10 or 15 years away from sending their kids to university or college? What are their, what's their experience and how can we change their equation? It's unfortunate that uh, the policy has changed so that we can't say that there's free tuition uh, in Ontario anymore, um, but that, that need still remains that 
people, lower income people, and people who have experienced a high cost of living, especially in cities like Toronto and Ottawa and the greater Toronto area, need to have that equation changed for them because by themselves, it'll be very difficult for them to scrape enough money to uh, have an education without going to large amounts of debt. Well, we've heard some criticisms now about the program. And Melissa, I wonder, you know, when the Ford government got elected in June of 2018, one of the first things they did was to cancel this program. And, you know, I guess some critics could say you threw the baby out with the bathwater in doing that. Would that be your view? Well, you've got to remember, and I think this is poor on the account of, uh, of how the government communicated this, the government of, of the day, is this is an actual reversion to the 2017-2018 policy that already existed. So it wasn't turning back the clock on university. It was, it was actually giving, um, you know, those who needed it most access to, to go in the same way that it, it existed in the uh, in the past before the government, uh, the liberal government made the change. So I'm not sure that uh, it was uh, full scale. But look, at the time, the, the conservatives were elected uh, to take a look at the spending in the province uh, to make this, uh, you know, to make it more tenable uh, and to make a program like this more tenable uh, for the future and to have something uh, of support exist for uh, for students seeking post-secondary education. Steve, I do want to say that this takes a little bit of the burden off of universities and colleges themselves to find ways to uh, to fund their own operational costs. Uh, and those, you know, the, the policy needs to look at how universities, colleges themselves are commercializing, are uh, are, are using the uh, the the, the pools of, of donations, the the endowments that uh, that exist, and to put some of that heat back on uh, universities and colleges making some tough choices around how to fund their operations in oh, the future. Okay, Kareem, let me come at this from another angle. And, and that is uh, one of the other criticisms that we've heard of this program, which we haven't touched on yet, was that, I mean, the deal that the previous government made was, if you are an eligible student, meaning low enough income to be eligible for this program, uh, you can go to post-secondary and take basically whatever you want. And as we opened up our discussion, we can see that the government has various priorities that they would really like to channel more people into. And I guess the question then becomes, should the citizens of Ontario, through their taxes, effectively give a free post-secondary education to any eligible student to study anything they want, as opposed to, say, what the province, you could argue, truly desperately needs at this particular moment in its history? Uh, great question. Um, two points on this. Uh, first, if you go into the Dive Interactive platform, you can see how income, family income, correlates with going to college university. And it's directly related. The higher family income is at almost every level, the more likely you are to be able to go to college university. And that's one of the things that this policy was meant, meant to uh, tackle. Um, I think there's lots of tools uh, that governments uh, and the public have to coax people to different programs. I think in general, it's very difficult to predict uh, what kind of program, except in those targeted areas we referred to earlier, might be a job, might result in you and being job, uh, you and being job ready. Um, I would say that in general, because university and college attendance is correlated with higher lifetime incomes, that in general, it's a, it's a worthwhile investment. Uh, we're seeing right now that those much maligned general arts and science degrees are going to be really important. Uh, it's important to be a, a well-rounded citizen in an era of uh, massive misinformation. It's important to be a uh, someone who's taken to the agenda and uh, encouraged to watch the agenda online or on TV. And uh, degrees like arts and science programs uh, are more likely to encourage that than the, your much more applied programs. Um, so I don't want to um, 
assume that any given program at any given point is um, less, more or less job ready. But we should make an argument that universities and colleges have to be continually uh, responsive to the job market and continuing to look at how to make their programs as responsive as possible. Well, Simona, it, it's and thanks for the plug, incidentally, uh, Kareem. But but uh, Simona, would you agree that it it is still an empirically provable fact that those with a post-secondary education, you know, do better in life, period, full stop. So if this managed to get more people into post-secondary, how exactly was it a bad thing? Um, like I said, I mean, I, th I think, yes, I think they do do better. And I think that's why we have seen um, an increase in enrollment across Canada before this program will continue after this program. Um, you know, governments around the world are grappling with this. And, and I agree with Kareem. I think what we want, we want people to watch. I'm going to give you another plug. We do want people to watch the agenda, but we also want welders and carpenters. And we want, you know, the, the full range um, the full rounded um, individuals to, to, to watch it. I'll, I just want to bring up one, one example because I think it's an interesting one. I think it's one that governments um, here might, might be thinking about um, is Australia. So Australia has actually reduced um, tuition for engineering, for STEM, for health. Um, by something like 20 to 40 percent, um, and they are increasing tuition for philosophers and history and English majors. Um, and there's a really interesting debate happening in Australia around whether or not that's the right way to go, because what you will create are these sort of gentlemen and lady-like, you know, um, landed gentry-type degrees um, for people who continue in the humanities. So that's not a nudge. That's a that's an incentive as a disincentive to study the humanities and to and to you know be able to grapple with misinformation. Hmm. Um, so I wonder where, if we ever want to land quite there. That seems that seems acute to me and acute measure to me. Okay. Well, Melissa, let me put this, some of that and then some of Kareem's comments to you as well, which is the notion that yes, of course we need people with uh, with college skills as well. We need uh, people who are prepared to to be uh, journeymen and tradespeople, and uh, those are all extremely important things for the future of the province and the country. Uh, but Kareem is right. We also need people with uh, a good old-fashioned uh, general arts BA who are capable of critical thinking. Uh, those are skills that are going to be hugely important in the future. And, and one wonders whether or not, by canceling this program, um, whether the Ford government made a mistake, not only by doing that, but also by bringing in a 10% tuition cut which then starved universities of the income that they needed to be better at what they do. Could you speak to all of that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I don't think it's a dichotomy between, um, you know, churning out um, people for the workforce out of universities and colleges versus, you know, those who have uh, who have liberal arts degrees. I, I think the world works, frankly, when there's uh, when there's both. And I can probably speak for myself and my and the other panelists saying that we're Probably not those that were uh, churned out of colleges for uh, uh, to become to become welders, and yet uh, you're you know we're doing quite fine uh, and and pandemic proof on top of all of that with the with a university degree maybe not pandemic proof but certainly faring better. Look, the the government has uh, you know the government has different levers and and different incentives that it should put on to look at the labor force, uh, but not to drop uh, you know not to drop entirely the 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 notion of uh, education for the sake of education. I think that it takes uh, both uh, to make the world go around, and I, I think Simone has brought an interesting point up about uh, some of the incentives that you can uh, you can put in short term. To uh, to meet the labor sector needs that uh, that frankly are are changing after COVID nineteen. 
So, Kareem, here's the bigger uh, overarching question, which is, and I think it's fair to say this, liberals uh, who are in positions of power uh, kind of love to get their fingers into the mechanisms of government and come up with ever newer and ever more intriguing programs uh, to achieve, um, you know, among the populace, goals that the government of the day sees as being relevant to achieve. Uh, as we've seen in the case of this program, uh, you guys came in with some really novel and, uh, you know, very serious ideas about how this program uh, could improve the post-secondary education scene for so many people in the province. There were unintended consequences as well. Maybe it wasn't focused as well as it ought to have been. Maybe it cost more than it should have been, etc. Does this example, free post-secondary education, offer a cautionary tale about what governments are actually good at and what they're not good at? I think it offers an example of what's really required to make policy long lasting, which is to lead with your values. Uh, so in that case, um, stating upfront that high school education by itself in general is just not gonna be enough. Uh, and college and university education, including college pathways that lead to those skill trades that we were talking about is gonna be the next baseline. That's something that we need to communicate as a value to us as a society. Um, uh, I think there's something to be said uh, around uh, the promise of universal programs or the promise of uh, big sweeping programs and that reformist liberals need to have a, have a sense of how many of those programs you can implement at once. I think the point around doing this towards the end of a mandate is well taken. Um, and there is lots of good discussion among liberals, among progressives right now around all the big new programs that we need to build back better in response to the pandemic. Um, and we probably need to be sequencing those a bit, but not being unambitious. So uh, I think uh, pe people, people who see the need for a response to the pandemic are going to be uh, looking at uh, this dive student aid platform and saying, what are the conditions that we can have in place to really make them uh, make these changes resonate, not just with families, but with the population and with a message that really resonates. Simona, what's your takeaway on whether governments can or can't do these things well? Um, I think it's a cautionary tale about putting aside partisanship when it comes to health and education. So I think what we should be thinking about is how do we design durable programs that parties can agree on and we agree on the values as well. So we know we care about access, we know we, we should care about retention, I care about retention, parents care about retention. How do, we, um, how do we design programs that parties can agree on and that can be measured over longer than one or two years, right? So we're looking at like 10-year programs uh, across K to 12 and post-secondary and trades. Let's agree on the goals and let's implement them regardless of, of uh, you know, our party politics. Melissa, in our last 20 seconds here, is that a good lesson that if you're going to bring in a new program, it better have favor in the opposition as well? Look, I think it needs to have favor with uh, with the opposition and certainly with Ontarians. And you've got to be in a position where it's a sustainable, long lasting program uh, that, that does the things that you originally set out to do. And I think that was the problem with this one. And I, I frankly think it's the problem with full scale you know, generational, uh, once in a generation kind of policy uh, changes uh, that you're going to see from governments as a response to the pandemic, but might not necessarily withstand the test of time. That's a great discussion, everybody. Thanks to Melissa Lansman, Kareem Bardizi, Simona Chiosi. It's good to have all of you on TVO tonight. Thanks so much. Thank you for having Thank me. Steve. Thanks, Steve. 
The Agenda with Steve Pakin is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario. And by viewers like you. Thank you.